Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big, the handsome one that stands right in the middle. That's me. And you're listening to Music Mania Podcast. You are locked and loaded on the Music Mania Podcast. Thank you so much, man. I, I love talking about the things that I love, Clint. And for you to allow me to do it with you, uh, I am the Music Mania Podcaster. We roll tonight to the guitar bite. And for those about to rock, I salute you. You ready for some screaming heavy metal? Scream for me, Brazil! Scream for me, Brazil! We rock! You are now listening to the Music Mania Podcast, the number one hard rock podcast in the Midwest. Featuring hard-hitting interviews with rock's living legends. And now, here's your host, Clint Schweitzer. Welcome to the Music Mania Podcast. I am your host, Clint Schweitzer. Thank you so much for being with me yet again as we are off and running into the spring and soon-to-be summer months here on the podcast. And I'll tell you this, a lot of you have noted that for the past several shows, there has been little to no commentary from me on the podcast. Uh, Basically... You listen to the podcast, you listen to the interview. That's what I've been doing, you know, for uh, quite a few shows now. And the reason for that is quite simply because, guys, this year has kind of finally culminated into being the bummer that it's been. And I've tried to stay positive, and we've been keeping this podcast going and doing some great interviews. And the mediums have changed. We do lots of them on Zoom. Many of you, you know, consume the podcast by just subscribing to our Ignitro Entertainment YouTube channel and watching the video of the interview. And that's great. There truthfully hasn't been a lot that I've needed to comment on. Um, I've tried to stay positive for the last year. Uh, I've been to one concert in the last uh, 400 or so days. We're not covering shows. It looks like this summer, once again, every time you look, shows are getting pushed back a year. Tours are getting canned. I think the the stadium tour, Motley Crue, Def Leppard, and Poison, is soon to follow, and that just bums me out. And so a year of that, it's kind of taken its toll, and I love doing these interviews. We love talking to the guests. We will continue to do that. I love doing it. It's why I do this show. It's why I've done it since uh, around 2014, but so much has changed in just a year's time. And, you know, I think back to when this all kind of started, we had people on like Eric Martin from Mr. Big, and we're all just kind of talking about, oh, well, surely this won't go on, but for a couple months, and we'll get bands and artists back out touring and on the road, which is what they do over a year later now. And I am, it just bums me out uh, to know that another summer is going to go by with very little to know live music uh, for many of you. And it's just, it's it's just really hard for a lot of us that are freedom loving Americans that spend their summers either traveling, you know, hanging out with friends, going to the lake. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's what the summertime has always been our best time because we're on the road doing interviews uh, backstage at concerts, covering shows, doing reviews. If you go right now to musicmaniapodcast.com, it's been over a year since I've actually made a review post on the website. That's just kind of where things are. It's not always going to be this way. And when I talk to publicists or I talk to managers, every single email has to include all this uncertainty and all this, well, due to COVID, we may not be able to do this or that, or, you know, because of COVID, we're, and it just, it bums me out. That, that's all. So 
for a lot of these, you know, uh, episodes of the podcast, I'm putting the interview up for you to listen to because that's why you listen to this show. You listen because of the interviews. That's the way it's always been. But as the podcast format becomes kind of more saturated, more podcasts out there, I think there's something like 9 million podcasts out there. We're going to talk to our guest this week, who, by the way, is JJ French, a former guitarist from Twisted Sister. Uh, who has a podcast of his own called The French Connection. We're going to talk to him about kind of why he decided to start doing a podcast. And his is tremendous, and I hope you'll check it out. But as it gets more and more uh, kind of competitive, as it were, you know, you can hear a lot of the same guests on four or five different podcasts a week. And if you don't hear them on this show this week, you might hear them on a different show next week. So the exclusivity has sort of been cut down, and I think a lot of that's just due to there's not a lot going on. There's not a lot to promote, so I, I don't know. This whole thing is um, it, it's really tough, so we're going to get through it. We're doing uh, going to keep doing shows. It may not be every week. Uh, I, I've been kind of loading them up and doing a bunch of interviews lately, and I enjoy doing it, and so that's, uh, you know, you're going to hear this one today with J.J. French. It's tremendous, and Twisted Sister, guys, has always been one of my favorite bands, and no, they're not... Uh, considered one of the great hard rock bands of all time by any means, but I will tell you this, they are one of the great live hard rock bands that I've ever seen, and I am so thankful that I got to see Twisted Sister at their final U.S. show back in 2016 in Sioux Falls, South Dakota at the Goldlands uh, Pawn and Jewelry before it closed down, just a couple of months before it closed down for good at the Badlands. It was um, really just an unbelievable show because there was a thousand people there. It was a very small venue, and Twisted Sister was amazing. You know, D. Snyder's one of my favorite frontmen. J.J. French came on this podcast probably four or five months before the band played their final show uh, on their 40 and F It tour, and I always point to that interview as a huge turning point in this podcast because J.J. is such a, you know, such an enigmatic, outspoken person. Twisted Sister is this iconic band uh, that that really, I think, did such a good job during their last, you know, 10, 12 years of existence of making themselves a commodity. And J.J.'s a manager. He's a business guy. He's someone that could really be trusted on the music and the, the uh, you know, the business side of things. And he was able to help Twisted Sister kind of be looked at as a commodity. They didn't over-tour. They played festivals. They came in for weekend gigs. It was their model, and it worked. We're going to talk to him about all that and much more. Does he miss the limelight? The band's now been defunct for five years now. Uh, on his podcast, The French Connection, they've had such guests on as Chris Jericho, uh, even Eddie Trunk, and even his bandmate, Eddie Ojeda, fellow guitarist from Twisted Sister recently. So I want you to check out that podcast. But before you do... Check out my interview with none other than J.J. French. J.J., how you doing, sir? Uh, good. Hold on. Oh, perfect. Yeah, so I bought a new mic for traveling, and I just needed to make sure that sounded. Does it sound okay? Yeah, yours sounds great. I think yours is better than mine. Mine, I'm uh, out of the studio today, so I'm like, man, yours, yours sounds great. Mine's like... Yeah, it's okay, but you know what? So, it gets the job done. <laughs> I walk into Best Buy and I said, I need something, you know, that's not going to be crazy. And this was like $99, you know? It's a cute little thing. Looks like yeah, a spaceship. Looks like I a like spaceship. That. It looks like a spaceship, doesn't it? That's like a blue Yeti, maybe. Those are good or a Yeti. Those are good. Those are yeah, that's another model. How are yeah, you? Yeah, so you're you've I mean hopping right into it here, you've you know. Someone that's been, you, you've been interviewed. We've had you on our show before. <laughs> and now 
you've kind of turned the table. You've done a million interviews in your day and now you're the one doing the interviews on your show, The French Connection. How did this all come about? You, I, I, don't know, I know Mark Mendoza does a show. How did this kind of come about for you? And I, I've really enjoyed the conversations you've done so far with some really great musicians, man. That's a great question. Um, you know, over, over time, if you ask uh, people who have, you know, relatively good communication skills and, and are raconteurs, they will tell you, and they are somewhat celebrities, they'll say, oh, if I have another friend who tells me you should write a book, or if I had another friend who told me you should do this or another do it, you know, so people told me I should be doing stand-up comedy, I should write a book, <laughs> and now podcasting is everywhere, you know, so why don't you have a podcast? And I go, well, because you just don't snap your fingers and have a podcast, you know, you have to really think about the work involved, you have to have a plan, you have to have a team a production team, you know, all of a sudden you add all of that into the mix of what you normally do. And it becomes, you know, it could become a bit overwhelming. So a mutual friend of mine, a mutual friend of me and my wife uh, is an executive for live by live, live by live, bought podcast one. And, you know, when they bought podcast one, uh, she said, you know what? We bought podcast one. Maybe now you should do a podcast. And I said, you know, that sounds great. How do you even go about it? So I had to learn, you know, and, the, and we put, to, you know, we, we did a deal and uh, they gave me a production team. And frankly, like everything in this world, at the beginning of it all, it's overwhelmingly confusing. Yeah. And then once you get into the groove of it all, it becomes pretty natural. Okay. So, um, you know, the thing was getting guests, who's getting the guests, how are the guests coming on? Are they interesting? How often do you have to do a podcast? How many people are podcasting? How many episodes are out there in the world? And there's 8 million, apparently there's almost 9 million podcasts in the world yeah. and, and 80 million pod or excuse me, 30 million podcast episodes. And you are diving into a pool and here's the, here's the best way I can put it. If some kid comes to me and goes, Hey man, give me some advice. I want to put a band together. And I think, my God, you're about to dive into a pool with a billion bands, a billion artists, a huge history. And you're starting at the absolute bottom of the rung. You know, do you get intimidated by it? And the fact is, if you're 20, you don't like I didn't at 20 when I started twisted, you know, you just kind of like a, you have youth on your side, time on your side, optimism on your side, and you don't know failure. And you go dive. And here I am, you know, almost 50 years after Twisted, having created a world-class brand, you know, which I can be proud of. Now I'm in a new world of podcasting. And um, you just have to be focused. Get great guests, ask good questions, and hope you get an audience. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's about, getting an audience. It sure is. And it's funny because you were one of our first big, really big guests from back in uh, 2016. We actually had you on right before the uh, last few dates of the 40 and fuck it tour, as it were. We were able to be on hand to see you, Twisted Sister, at their last U.S. show there in uh, South Dakota. It's unbelievable that it's been uh, five years since that's happened. What, what have the last kind of five years been like? Kind of leaving that legacy behind uh, Twisted Sister with two awesome shows, I think, in South Dakota and then one in Mexico City. And that was it. You guys quit when it, when you were still one of the best live bands around. I'll stand by that to this day. Kind of looking back on it, what's the last five years been like since that last show? Um, well, I've reflected a bit and I still feel it was the best thing to do. Um, <clears throat> when we retired in 1980s, 
88, 87, uh, I felt there was a lot more to do, but I never thought it would get done. And then we got back together in 2003 and had an amazing 14 year run exceeding anything I could have ever imagined playing some of the biggest shows we ever played, releasing a Christmas record that was a hit inexplicably, you know, which was fun <laughs> getting on national television m way more than we did in the original, you know, early days we had MTV, but we weren't doing the tonight show and the Craig Ferguson show and Regis and Kelly and all that, you know, all that stuff that comes along with it. All of a sudden the Christmas album, Everybody wants us, even though we were told nobody wants a Christmas album until we did one. And now everybody is doing a Christmas song. Every band in the world is releasing at least one Christmas song every year, which is kind of funny. Um, so I've been happy. I mean, I've been working on my book with my co-author, Steve Farber. The book is called Twisted Business. That'll be out in September. And I guess we'll be doing this again when the book comes out and we'll talk about the book. Absolutely. The book is really kind of like finally a statement about how I, you know, how I run my life and it's, it's out there. So the book will be out. Um, and, uh, you know, I did up until COVID was doing um, keynote speaking and motivational speaking for corporations, which was a whole job in and of itself and a different position. Not that I was intimidated by the thought of it, uh, but I didn't know how it was going to evolve in a business and it evolved in a way that I never expected. I thought I'd be talking to musicians and it turns out I'm not talking to musicians. I'm talking to straight business people. Wow. And I'm, and, 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 and I'm hired by insurance companies, finance companies. I mean, I replaced, get this in one of my talks, I replaced Timothy Geithner, the former secretary of the treasury who had to pull out <laughs> at the last minute and they needed a guest speaker and um, I was, someone suggested me and the guy who had to hire me was terrified. He goes, why would I want this guy in <laughs> Twisted Sister to replace Timothy Geithner? And my friend said, well, cause he's really good. And trust me, he knows what to do, you know, cause I'm a performer and I know what to deliver. But the fact is that the, the twisted method is what I talk about in my book, which is T-W-I-S-T-E-D. I made it easy to consume and to digest. T-W-I-S-T-E-D, twisted. It's tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence, and discipline. And those were the, this is, these were the seven lessons that we learned to become successful. So the myth is that bands like ours make some pact with the devil and it's sex, drugs, and rock That's and roll, and we become famous. You know, that's the myth. That's the belief, which, by the way, we all sell it. Let's be honest. We sell this dream. You know, that's part of what we do. That's mm -hmm. part of what the mechanism of stardom of rock and roll is about. You know, think about this phrase. People say rock is dead, but everyone goes party like a rock star. They don't go party like a World Series champion. They don't <laughs> go party like a football champion. They don't go party like a soccer champion, party like a plumber. Uh, you know, party like a bus driver. No, it's party like a rock star. So the concept of rock stardom is ubiquitous. And we exemplified an era where rock stardom was blown up and expanded. And so that's what we represent to people. So hopefully this book sets the record straight. Well, I think I always thought it was very interesting. The last, uh, well, 14, 13, 14 years of Twisted's existence from 2003 to 2016, and maybe this is just your own business acumen, maybe this was the band making this a collective decision, 
but you guys made yourselves a commodity. You didn't do large scale tours. You weren't out there, you know, kind of overexposing yourselves. You did the fly-in dates. You came in for big shows and you were a commodity. People wanted to see that and it, and it kind of created an aura about the band. Was that you and sort of your business sense or was that collectively, this is the what the band wanted to do? Because I know someone like Mark who had kind of things going on full time was hard for him to commit to a big tour, but how did that all kind of come to be? Well, let's just say the results, the final results, which were the perception that the band just plays in front of 100,000 people all the time, was a byproduct of the limitations that we had in order to be able to proceed as a band. And actually turned out to be the smartest decision we could make because the band didn't feel like slogging you know, sure. in a tour bus and driving around and carrying a crew. We just didn't want to do it. You know, when you're 20, 30, you can do it. When you're 60, it becomes less attractive, unless you're the Rolling Stones. I mean, frankly, the Rolling Stones, McCartney, Fleetwood Mac, you know, they travel in their private jets and, and they use a home base in a city and they'll just fly out because they have so much money that they can treat a single show as like a, a local gig almost. But otherwise, you're in a bus, in a van, and you're not. But you're in a bus, couple buses with with trucks, and you you know you're traveling, and you're always together. And I, I don't think we wanted to do that anymore. You know, the band said, as long as we can maintain our health, and the impact of the live show, which was important, as you point out, we were as good on the last night as we were on our first night. Never changed. Consistency is the key. Um, we kept delivering. Now D kept saying, I want to leave, I want to leave, I want to retire, I want to retire. And he's still out there doing what he's doing, but he's not right. doing it, he's not doing it at this level. And he somehow can reconcile it. That's his business. I, you know, I've been asked to do a lot of projects. I was asked to join bands. I said, man, I don't want to just do the bus thing anymore. You know, this is just not what I want to do. You know, uh, the beauty of Twisted was we fly into a city, we we were headlining. You, you know, the, the gear's all there, the crew's there, the, everything is set up. You walk out on stage and you play in front of 100,000 people and then you get in a van, go to the airport and you go home. And that doesn't suck. And you get paid a lot of money for it, right? So we worked hard to get to that level of expertise where uh, people say to me, how do you walk away from playing to 100,000 people? That's a valid question because most musicians would buy Anybody would die. I mean, think about it. Most people want to be mm. rock stars. They can't imagine it. So we, I, as the founding member of the band, have played over 9,000 performances in my life. And wow. frankly, you know, after like 9,000 plus performances, no matter how big or small the crowd is, um, it is a product of training and a job and you just go do it. Um, and you're with pros who know how to deliver it. You know, your crew, uh, your a everyone's a pro. So people say to me, do you get nervous for a gig? I could be asleep five minutes before the show. <laughs> you could, you know, and then some, someone says to me, the intro tape is going to run in five minutes and you go and do the show because the consistency level was very high. And um, the joke, I mean, my internal joke is we're the heavy metal version of Cats on Broadway, you know, <laughs> except we're Jewish. So it's K-A-T-Z. That's the joke. Right? But, <laughs> I like um, that. But, uh, you know, like, because you do the same, you know, you're playing the same basic 17 songs. You're playing it in different parts of the world. You're not repeating it to the same person. So you don't have to feel bad about that. And you're a pro, which means you deliver every song the way it's supposed to be 
delivery. You go to a Broadway show, they're doing the same damn show every night. Mm -hmm. You would like to think that they're doing the same show, you know, the same bringing the same honesty to the show. And I believe we always brought the honesty to the show. I don't think that we ever phoned it in. I think you go out there. And by the way, it doesn't suck when you have a hundred thousand people singing, we're not going to take it. <laughs> and I want to rock, you know, yeah. it's great. But when we walked away, I had done enough. I really had done enough that last year I was counting down the dates. Mm. My wife said, how are you going to feel? You know, how are you going to feel as it gets down, you know, and then we get down to the last show in Mexico and then there's the songs and we start counting them down. And we got to the last song, we played SMF and we came out and we, we bowed, you know, took the bow. And I thought, wow, man, what a career, you know, what a great run. Kind of like Drew Brees, you know, that kind of a thing. You Good know? comparison. <laughs> it's, kind, it's kind of time to retire. It's time for me, for me. This is my decision. I, can I, I will tell you this, though. I did a motivational speaking engagement. I, was, I did a, a keynote speaking engagement at a thing called Extreme Leadership Conference. It's one of the conferences I get called to do. And I headlined one night. And this girl who was a very famous Broadway actress, had, I, I don't remember her name, headlined the other night. And she had been on Phantom of the Opera on Broadway for 10 years. She was the longest running star of Phantom. And she's doing her whole history. You know, when she was eight, she saw um, Annie on Broadway and her eyeballs grew big and she had to do it. And then she struggled and struggled and struggled and was rejected and rejected and rejected. And over time, she thought, you know, like most performers, how am I going to handle it? And, you know, finally, finally, uh, she said she got to a point in her life where she was given openings to do Phantom. And then it was like small parts on the road. And then she wound up doing it on the road and she wound up starring on the road. And then for some reason, the person in New York was leaving and they gave her a shot and she did the first audition and it failed. And she goes, Oh my God, my career is over. You know, and they somehow they brought her back and she passed and she got the gig. Wow. She got the gig on Broadway. That would be the pinnacle, the end, the greatest thing. And she did it for 10 years. Right. So now she has a book out. She's doing these, these talks and uh, and she showed clips and she's phenomenal. And at the end of her talk, I walk up to her because we have similar, you know, stories in terms sure. of how long it takes to succeed. And I said to her the same thing that people say to me, which is so when are you going back on Broadway? And she went, if I ever have to sing another damn song on stage, <laughs> I'll kill like basically I'll kill myself. Like, what do you mean? She goes, I did it for, you know, I'm done. I don't ever want to do it again. And I thought, wow, finally somebody who could fully understand how I feel. So, so while, like I said, it's hard for people to fathom why you wouldn't just want to go off and play to hundred thousand people. And it's beautiful to do it. Um, you know, you get satisfied with it. And I enjoy um, keynote speaking. I enjoy motivational speaking. I enjoy talking to people and taking them through my journey because it applies to every business. So yeah, there's, your short there's your short no, answer, I, by the way. I, I, no, I love that. And it, it definitely got me kind of reflecting on on the band and the times I've seen you guys uh, over the years and the different venues and everything. And, you know, and I think that one thing that's really important is uh, your guest last week on the French Connection was Eddie Trunk, a guy who's a good friend of ours. And, uh, you know, I, just it was a tremendous conversation. But you guys talked about the kind of the story behind the New York steel, which is sort of the impetus for twisted sister kind of, you know, regaining its steam and, and continuing uh, on after that. But talk about what it was like catching up with Eddie and how important kind of Eddie is. And then 
for the people that haven't heard the interview yet, kind of the, a little, maybe the cliff notes of the story about how New York Steel came to be and uh, how Eddie Trunk had to call Ace Freely and tell him that, sorry, you're not the headliner anymore. We have Twisted Sister. Yeah, you know, Eddie's a great friend and um, always a supporter. Uh, but uh, the fact is that Twisted, you know, had not performed basically for 12 years. And um, 9-11 was a catalyst for many things. If you were a New Yorker, especially, and you live through 9-11, um, you'll never, it will never leave you. It was, it's one of these events that are, oh, it's a, it's a horrible event for the world. As a New Yorker, with the images that I have and will have in my brain all my life, because the buildings were just, you know, not far from me. And because um, we know, everyone knows someone who died or knew someone who knew someone who died, you know? And so it's the connection. I mean, Eddie Ojeda had a sister-in-law in one tower and a nephew in the other tower. They both got out. But my daughter's third grade teacher's husband died in it. And these are the things. So anyway, 9-11 occurs and the band is not together. And the band was just... VH1 had just shown behind the music, which was edited to make us look like we truly, truly, really hated each other, which in fact we did. And because the band didn't do drugs and drinking, we couldn't do the normal story that is on every VH1 where band gets together, band struggles, yeah. band makes it, band gets high, band gets ripped <laughs> off by their management, band goes into rehab, three guys die, they come back. This is the same story that goes over and over. Well, they couldn't do it with us because uh, we didn't drink and do drugs. So therefore, there's a whole big chunk of drama that they can't milk. But what they could milk was our dislike of each other, which they did. And it was so overblown that when it came out uh, I, I, and I saw it, I went, oh, my God, I knew we hated each other. I didn't know how much we hated each other, but now I know how much. <laughs> and then and then and two weeks after that was came out, 9-11 occurred. And Eddie Trunk calls me and he goes, um, I'm doing this benefit uh, to raise money for the Widows and Orphans Fund for the New York City Police and Fire Department. And, and I'm told and Eddie tells this story in my interview. He needs a headline. He needs a big name. And he says to me, he didn't tell me the drama of Ace or Anthrax. He just told me Ace is on the bill, Anthrax on the bill, Sebastian Box on the bill, Overkill's on the bill. But he didn't tell me the drama behind it, which he gets into in my podcast, which you can right. listen to on you know Spotify um, or Apple or Podcast One at the JJ French Connection, J E Y J E Y F R E N C H Connection. You can you can hear it. But he says, man. After watching that VH1 thing, I know the last thing you, you know, you're ever going to do is be able to put the band together. But boy, if you could, this would be big. And to the credit of all the guys in the band, and we're all New Yorkers. We're real New Yorkers. Yeah. I mean, we're New Yorkers. I'm from Manhattan. Eddie's from the Bronx. AJ's from Staten Island. Dean Marker born in Queens. It don't get much more New York than that, okay? <laughs> all five boroughs represented. And, uh, you know, don't get much more in New York. I know it sounds like the Sopranos almost. So anyway, <laughs> I called the guys up and they went, sure, you know, sure. Let's get together, you know, and play a show. And, and again, uh, people do not understand that it's not as easy as snapping your fingers and doing a show. Besides the fact that you have to learn the songs all over again, you also have to learn how to play in front of gigantic amplifiers. I mean, it's like going to war. It's like you don't go into a pro football game without the uniform yeah. and you don't go on stage with big amplifiers and a big PA system unless you're trained to deal with it because it's crazy and it's percussive and it's, it's like being in a war in a way. So we, we did three weeks of intense rehearsals 
and we did it. And we did it with just t-shirts and jeans, you know, that was it. And, and um, the reaction was absolutely mind blowing, but mm. not mind blowing enough for us to consider reunion. Okay. We all walked away. And um, I, in fact, I was so against anything other than the focus of what this was for, which was to raise money for the widows and orphans fund that when they asked me to do press, you know, do you have any projects coming up? I said, I'm not here to, to do anything more than to express our sorrow over those who died and to raise money for the New York city police fire department and emergency services. That's it. I said, that's it. That's an honest representation of what we're here for. I'm not here to promote a record, any individual projects, at all. This is it. And I, I think at the end of the show, I grabbed my daughter's arm, walked out the back door of the Hammerstein, walked over to 8th Avenue in my guitar case, got in a cab and went home and thought that would be the end. But word got out because so many people saw the show yeah. and we started getting offers and we started getting crazy offers. And we, as smart as we are, had no idea that the world cared about Twisted Sister at this point. None, zero, okay? I mean, yes, our songs were being licensed for commercials, um, for, for commercials, um, oh God, why is this thing in my screen? Okay, but for commercials and, and, and TV shows and movies at a record pace, and you know, we're not gonna take in I Wanna Rock or the two most licensed songs, and that was building up, but we didn't know that the, there were festivals in Europe. I didn't know what Sweden rock was. I didn't know what Bang Your Head was. I didn't know what Wacken was. I didn't know what Grass Pop was. And all of a sudden, they're saying, not only do we want you, you can headline over everybody or be co-headlining, you know, with Iron Maiden, with Kiss, Huzizi Top, um, White Snake, you, you know, or headlining over Yes and Jethro. Like, right. you're kidding me. Like, you're kidding me. I, we didn't know how to react to it. It took, two, you know what? It took two years for us to figure it out. And, and so we didn't go. We didn't jump on it because I didn't kind of believe it. I had no idea. And, and then finally we decided, let's dip our toe in that world, which in America, people have no idea what it's like in Europe and South America, none. And we wound up, you know, being accepted, not only accepted, but it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So we first thought it would last a year or two years, 2003, 2004. I said to D, you know, he goes, yeah, we'll do it to 2006 and the whole phenomenon <laughs> will be over. And 2006, then we said, oh, it's gotta be over. I said, I don't want to do this anymore. So we took a break in 2007, thinking it's definitely over. The fact that we took the break, they made bigger offers. <laughs> 2008. <laughs> and 2000, so I'm it. thinking by 2010, it's got to be over, right? This 80s phenomenon has got to be over. The offers got bigger. 2011, 2012, the shows are gigantic. We go to South America. We play soccer stadiums. Never been to South America in my life. The kids in South America, they're not even, they're no older than 25. We're not talking about like American fans who, you know, are like 60 and they're bringing their kids. We're talking about 25-year-old kids who weren't even born when these records came out. But their love of 80s metal, and be really clear about this, Ozzy, Sabbath, ACDC, Judas Priest, 
Kiss, Motley, you know, Whitesnake, Def Leppard. They worship us. Yes. In a, in a cult manner that is nearly impossible to describe. And in South America, it is a quasi-religious experience. I, I will tell you, it is the fervor. You know that Twisted Sister's biggest country is Mexico in terms of our Spotify <laughs> numbers? I didn't know that. That's cr- I, Makes sense, though. It makes sense. You know? So this was I, all, you know, as, as smart as I'm purported to be. I, I didn't know this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Did I take advantage of it once I knew it? Yeah, hell yeah. But, you know, sometimes you have to learn these things. Well, I think we maybe got just a taste of it here and there. I, I was at the first Rocklahoma. There was a few that, things in America that, that, that maybe uh, gave you a little bit of a, of, a, of a fervor of what you get overseas. But you guys did so much. You, you, you conquered and you did it. And 40 years later, and before we let you go, JJ, we got to talk about uh, you just had um, Eddie Ojeda. Uh, your your bandmate for forty years, um, great guitar tandem that you guys have been, and uh, you just had him on your podcast this week. Really going back, and it's a great, great interview with you too, and just kind of going back and reminiscing and, and talking about life and the band. And uh, you also got together with the the whole band virtually on uh, Twenty Two Now and Mark Mendoza's show to to pay tribute to AJ Perro. So kind of what's it been like just these last couple of weeks, c- catching up with AJ doing, catching up with the whole band and reminiscing about uh, AJ Perro, who was a, a tremendous guy and a, an awesome drummer. And I know, uh, you know, a member of the family and brotherhood for 40 years, man. Yeah. You know, the thing about AJ is that if AJ hadn't have died, maybe the idea of walking away from it wouldn't have been so big in my head. And as yeah. and Mike Portnoy is certainly one of the world's greatest drummers, if not yes. not only one of the world's greatest drummers, one of the greatest people. You couldn't have a nicer guy, a more respectful guy, a more talented guy, a more deferential guy than Mike Portnoy. It just doesn't exist on this planet. He's everything you would love. AJ had his thing, you know, his ingredient, like what John Bonham was to Zep or Keith Moon was to The Who or whatever. So that's what it was for me. And And with AJ gone, I loved him so much and I miss him so much. It, it, it killed me in a way, you know, it, and I went, eh, you know, without looking at, I, I would say, hello, Mr. Pirro. And he'd go, hello, Mr. French. Like we had this kind of attitude because I was the oldest and he was the youngest, you know, and it was always like that. And I always reflect on our last conversation, which was the night before he died. And, wow. um, and, uh, and that mm. was, a, you know, who knew he was going to die in 12 hours. He died 12 hours after my last conversation with him, you know, and we had made arrangements to meet in New York on a Monday and he called me on a Friday and told me that he was going to leave Adrenaline Mob, but that he's going to tell them it's for he's having a therapy on his arm and that don't, don't get alarmed because he needs to give him an excuse. But what, what was happening was he was actually suffering his heart attack while he was talking to me because he had wow. pains going down his left right. arm. So he thought it was a muscle problem. It turned I, I'm assuming mm. it was part of the heart attack. Okay, while we were talking. So I said to him, um, you know, will you be in the city on Monday? He goes, yeah. And I said, I'll see you Monday. He goes, he goes, and I said, listen, call your son or let your son know that we're going to use te- different texts in Europe and not bring your son. So his son, he contacted his son, which he never would have, wouldn't have happened had I not mentioned it to him. So they had a final conversation. Okay. Hmm. And, uh, and then, that, then the next morning I was at a uh, breakfast with the guy who released our documentary film you know we are twisted effing sister and i'm having breakfast with with the distributor and i got the phone call 
So, so we muddled through that year, 2015 and 2016, we called it a day. If it, if it, I'm not telling you it'll never happen again, because I said that once before and it happened again. <laughs> right. So I'm not saying, but we all get along great. We talk all the time. So that's anyway. great that you had that. And I think a lot of people enjoyed that. JJ, it's, it's, it's always an honor. My friend, when the book comes out, we'll have to reconnect this fall. Absolutely love the podcast. I think it's so different to have a podcast from someone that's there in the trenches that can really get into it. Cause you know, I've done this, we've had 200 guests on our show, but I'm not a musician. Do I look like a musician? I've got, I, 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 I would say that I have less hair than you, but I think I have a little more now that's rare. Okay. Right, that's rare. Right, that, that, right. That's not been the case. I, I don't, I, I'm not in the, no, no, by the way, you by are. the way, I'm not in the witness protection program. I know exactly. And I'm not, and I'm not on chemotherapy. And you know, it's the, funny because people who see you, they go, why'd you do this? You can, and some, some of them think you have chemo and then they don't know how to ask you. So they're like, how are you? <laughs> are you okay? <laughs> you know? Sometimes no, you just, just got to get just, it. Just, just did it. <laughs> I love it. I'm, I'm right there. You can see it. So my, my point is you're in there and you, you get to talk to these people and it's a different perspective. There's a million podcasts out there. Yours is special because you're one of the few that's in there and that you, you, you know, these people in different walks of life and it's great. And yeah, congratulations please, well, listen, it. I've got great guests on my podcast. You yes. Know? I've had Nuno Betancourt. I've had Steve yeah. Vai. I've had Joel Hookstra from Whitesnake and I've had the guys from Def Leppard and the guys from uh, Leonard Skinner and authors that you probably don't know. Um, the director, Frank Marshall, who directed the Bee Gees documentary, you know, a lot of really interesting people. Don McLean has been on the show ex- yeah. discussing the history of American pie. It's stuff that I loved and I hope that you find it interesting. And I like, uh, thank you so much for supporting it. I really appreciate Always. it. Always. You had our good friend, Chris Jericho, man, yes, and he's Chris the Jericho, best. <laughs> did, he did Rob Halford. Oh my God. Yeah. Rob's, Rob's interview was great. Chris Jericho, guy's like a magician, you know, he's uh, great. He's great. JJ, stay safe, stay healthy, my friend. We'll catch up soon. Best of luck, and we'll uh, we'll catch up soon, my friend. Thank you, Thank sir. You. Thanks for having me, man. You Always. Huge thanks to JJ French for joining me again. It's been five years. It was great to catch back up with him to see what he's been up to. His podcast is great, so check it out. Uh, the French Connection, uh, you can listen via Podcast One. Of course, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and Spotify and all that as well. And I think he's doing a really great thing, because like I mentioned in the interview, It's one thing for me, a fan, someone that loves this music, to interview these artists. When he does it, it's different because he's, uh, you know, he is a peer to these artists. He is someone that is, that has been in the trenches, been down the road with many of these guys, and that's a special kinship and a special bond that can't be recreated by a fan doing a podcast. So check out the JJ French Connection. Keep checking us out. Please hit that subscribe button, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify. Keep that feedback coming because someone called me out. They said, hey, we haven't been hearing you, you know, kind of lead into the podcast or give us an intro or give us a monologue. Well, that happened today. It was back. We'll see where things go. But we know this podcast is going to keep going no matter what, guys. We appreciate your support. Please keep it up. And we will be back with another episode of the Music Mania Podcast next week.